3: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just
4: when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain Plus, free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me, because I want to feel special, and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box, and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout.
2: This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations.
4: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we are going to ponder the future of the Republican Party. We're really excited to share our conversations with Mark McKinnon and Tim Miller. But before we get to that, we're gonna tackle a couple of news stories, the COVID data reporting and, oh God save us, the Wayfair conspiracy theories. So we're gonna do all that. Before we dive in, we wanted to share that next week is the beginning of our How to Be a Citizen series. We are so excited We get pragmatic, like how do you register for vote? How do you think about who you're going to vote for? All the way to super philosophical. Should we have another constitutional convention? I'm here for it. I like the range of this series. I think everybody else will too.
2: And if you are with us over on Patreon, you're going to get some perspective from my nine and five-year-old about the three branches of government and partisanship and voting, as well as some coloring pages to work with as you listen to the series. We're just going to try to make this a family experience. Let's all sit down together and think about citizenship. And I'm very excited about it.
4: And you're doing deep dives on the Federalist Papers on Patreon throughout the series as well, which we're using as sort of... Foundational documents in our conversation.
2: Yes, they are difficult to read, which I have heard from a number of folks in our extra credit book club. So, if you like the Supreme Court deep dives over on Patreon, we're going to do the same process with the Federalist Papers. Not all of them, there are 85. And, you know, I recognize that we all have our limits, but we're going to take six of them and go into a lot of detail. And those six really come up in our conversations throughout the series you're going to hear on the podcast. We also want to welcome our newest executive producers, Nicole Berkles and Julie Haller. We're so touched by your support. Our entire executive producer team is just phenomenal. And we so appreciate all of you who make it possible for us to do what we do here at Fancy Politics, especially these longer, more complex episodes we've been producing lately, thanks to Dylan, Elise, and Simeon and our patrons, because that is how we're able to bring you that kind of content. So, Let's talk about the number one news story many of y'all have been messaging
4: us about, which is the Trump administration's um, changes to the process hospitals use to report their COVID data, how many ICU beds are used, how much of the current treatments they have available, how many people are on ventilators. So previously that information went to the CDC where it was publicly available. Now. Through a private contractor, it is going through a system that will report it directly to the Department of Health and Human Services. And people have some concerns.
2: Well, I think those concerns are founded. And I also think that we are not going to live in a world where we have no visibility into these numbers. There are lots Mm -hmm. of groups working very hard to collect this data in Kentucky, for example, our data is reported to the state health department directly from hospitals and testing facilities. And so this is a roadblock and it is a big deal. And also, I don't want you out there thinking, well, now everything is going to be covered up. Yeah. Because there are lots of groups that are working really hard. The, the real problem here, well, I see two main problems. I'm interested in your perspective, Sarah, from a public health standpoint, We could talk about corruption in government, which I would like to do. But from a public health standpoint, I see two main problems. The first is... Switching systems in the middle of a crisis seems like a bad idea to me. Yep, even if it's the That's exactly what I was going to Even say. if it's the most amazing yep. system that's ever been created, switching systems in the middle of a crisis not a good idea. No, and never a good idea. The second problem is that CDC system has been in place for a long time, it's understood, it's been worked on, people know how to use it. Changing is going to complicate research. And we need research right now. And Mm -hmm. so I think this is really bad. I think it's extremely corrupt the way it's unfolded. Uh, But first, I would love to hear your thoughts, Sarah, on that public health component.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that... There are real problems here, but the narrative cannot be the Trump administration is going to take the data and say there's no COVID-19, because I don't really think that that's the concern, because that data, um, the the public health sharing of data like that is pretty robust and pretty agreed upon. And um, so I don't I, I I think we should focus on the really big problems here, which is Is it going to be publicly available? It is essential that they make it publicly available and that the process is transparent. But I also think we can't ignore the fact that there have been problems with the CDC system. And if we ignore that, then we miss the chance to make a really compelling argument around why we need solutions, but this is maybe not the best one. I mean, the CDC at one point was lumping active coronavirus with tests for recovered patients. And it was a really big deal. And it was a very big problem. And so we need to be honest about the CDC reporting system and say, okay, we see the issues. But the most important part is that it's well known and that it was publicly available. And so even if you solve every other issue, you know, trying to teach people a new system when their ICU beds are overflowing sounds like a wretched idea. Everybody remember healthcare.gov? Like there's inevitable learning curves and tech malfunctions and system failures that we do not have time for right now. And so I just think that instead of instead of making it about, oh well, the Trump administration is going to make COVID-19 disappear. Let's talk about we see the problems, now is not the time to fix them. And even if you move forward with this system, the public availability of the data is essential to us moving forward with research, vaccines, good treatments. And you cannot abandon that, and you cannot make it harder, not just for the hospitals to report it, but these researchers who are, like,
2: in the thick of it right now, harder for them to get their hands on the data. Totally agree. I also just need to mention, because this really bothers me, this new system was set up by a Pennsylvania company named Teletracking, which received a $10 million contract from the United States government in a non-competitive bidding process in April. Hmm. And Senator Patty Murray from Washington has written a letter to the CDC asking why teletracking received this contract on a non-competitive basis. All of this, I think, underscores the importance of trusting leadership. Because if we heard from the Obama administration or I don't know, the George H.W. Bush administration in the middle of a crisis. Hey, there are some flaws in the way we're getting this data today. We know that it is hard, but we are going to switch to a new system that we think will do a better job. Probably a lot of us would go, well, okay, hopefully that works. But here with this administration, our first instinct is what are they trying to hide? And if we heard from one of those other administrations, because this was an emergency, We went with a company that has the best track record in the industry that the government has worked with before. They know our procedures. We know theirs. It was a non-competitive process. This is what we're doing. Probably most of us would have gone, well, okay, that makes sense. But with this administration that has so frequently awarded contracts in non-competitive processes, has so frequently selected vendors with no experience whatsoever in the thing they're receiving multi-million dollar federal contracts to do, my instinct is, okay, well, what's behind this? Who's on that board? Who's a shareholder? What are the connective pieces here? Because none of this makes sense to me. And it just, it makes me sad that my first instinct is to suspect something nefarious every time this administration makes an announcement like this. But I also feel that my suspicion is grounded in the experience of the last three years.
4: Well, it seems like a lack of trust and the instinct to think something nefarious is going on is an excellent transition to the Wayfair cabinet conspiracy theory. Listen listen to that deep breath. (laughs) Listen, audience, listen to that. And maybe everybody should do that. That's probably a good idea right now.
2: That would be a good idea.
4: Oof. So if you don't uh, have the internet, which congratulations, there has been a particularly aggressive (laughs) viral conspiracy theory over the last week. It started in a Reddit thread when a user noticed some particularly expensive industrial cabinets on the Wayfair website with girl names attached to them and decided that this was a cover for child sex trafficking. And, you know, it, it, this, theory of this one user fit very nicely in the larger QAnon slash Pizzagate. There's a global elite trafficking in children uh, worldview. I think there's also something to the fact that everybody's just stressed to the max right now. And it was a particularly susceptible environment to this particular Conspiracy theory, and now it is everywhere. It is particularly aggressive on Instagram, which is not usually where you see this kind of stuff, which I think is interesting. You know, it swept up Tom Hanks at one point, it swept up con- Chrissy Teigen. Um, it's just, it's
2: everywhere. I think that it is becoming more than one thing, and that's why it's crossing platforms too. I think that there is a strain of that. QAnon worldview that is sort of the classic conspiracy theory. I don't know how to make sense of things, so I will come up with stories that are also like fun puzzles, and I feel like an investigator, and I feel like somebody who really gets what's going on when everybody around me is a sheep. And, you know, I think there's there's some classic, well-understood psychological stuff going on there. I also think it is pulling in people who are just chaos tourists, misogynist. Like I about lost my mind yesterday on Chrissy Teigen's behalf. This probably indicates my stress level as well, because I look at what's happened to her. And if you don't know, I mean, the woman cannot post a picture of a taco without just being assaulted and. As best I can tell, Chrissy Teigen seems like a lovely human being who enjoys being a mother and making yummy food and wearing bathing suits and living her life. And (laughs) she is as funny and smart as she is glamorous. And you can't even be mad at her for it because she also tries to make the world a little bit better. And to see the relentless assault on her as this just like woman of color with a platform for no other reason than those things. Tells me that one piece of what's going on here is just I don't want somebody like her being influential in this country. And then I think there's like a third thing sort of spreading into Instagram where this universe of humans sees the writing on the wall for Trumpism. And understands that if they want to keep these ideas alive, they are going to have to pull in more women. And I think that's why you see QAnon running women as candidates. And I think it's why you see things like Wayfair that pull in that demographic of people who have been mostly out of this kind of movement. That's my theory, at least.
4: Yeah, because there's this undercurrent of well, we know that child sex trafficking is an issue yes we do know that and if it's an issue that you care deeply about um, you should know that it's so prolific and so threatening that they don't need the cover of Wayfair to engage in it you know I had a local business owner arrested for soliciting an FBI agent for a child. (laughs) And he was not offering $17,000. He was offering a bag of gummy bears, okay? So the issue of, if, like, if you are sincerely swept up in this because you care and you're concerned about child sex trafficking, then go to the organizations that lead the fight on this. Learn about the issue. Learn about what makes children really susceptible. What types of children, what vulnerable populations do we need to be concerned about? Because it feels to me like this this last holdout of good guys, bad guys. And if we can just root out these global elites then we'll have protected children. Which to me, it, it feels like the the child aspect is just the last thing that, in theory, there's no partisanship around. Everybody wants to protect ch- children from predators, and so that's what we're all going to glom on to because that's the one thing that's kind of left. You know, you can't talk about the environment. You can talk about protecting Earth, or protecting people's economic interests, or religion. Like, there's no uniter anymore. So this is what we've got. This is what we've got to traffic in. No pun intended is this idea that we all have to protect children, which is true, but it's complicated just like every other problem. There's no easy, good guy, bad guy. We take out Jeffrey Epstein and all little girls are safe from predators. That's not ever going to be the case. And if you care about that, then educate yourself and know how we can start to deal with this problem and start to protect children, and let me tell you, going after Chrissy Teigen on Twitter doesn't protect a single child, and that's what bothers me about it. Like it's just this, this false front of caring about kids that really, really gets to me.
2: Yeah, it's people using folks who genuinely care about kids for their own mm-hmm. purposes and I, you know i think look if you and manipulating them if you read these stories and went oh that is weird that's okay that's yep. okay that indicates that you are a person with a big heart who cares and that you don't want anything to be wrong in plain sight that you can help and that's good and then the next layer is Okay, let me just think for a second about whether it sounds right that a company as big and publicly scrutinized as Wayfair, because this is not Wayfair's Mm -hmm. first PR crisis, even in the last six months or so, a company like that, could this really be going on through that site? And then I think you watch how quickly it goes from that seems like an awful lot of money for a cabinet to some connection to George Soros. Or Ellen DeGeneres. And that's where, for me, it really unravels. Even if you thought at first, that seems weird, somebody should look into it. Once you hear the rest of the story and see how it connects to narratives that have been pushed over and over and over again in a certain community, uh, that raises the suspicious flags big time. I read a really good piece by Mike Rothschild, who is one of a handful of folks who work deeply in following QAnon and other conspiracy theorist communities. And that is, first of all, let me just say, that is hard and awful work. NBC's reporter Ben Collins posted about how many of his colleagues are on like neo-Nazi hit lists and that it's just... It's just a nightmare covering this stuff. And rarely does it bubble up to the headlines where people get credit for their work. So thank you, everybody who lives Mm -hmm. in the dark web. Thank you so much for doing that. But anyway, I read his piece and he said, why does it why did this catch fire so quickly? Because these folks are conditioning you constantly to believe that there are no coincidences. There are no mistakes. There's no graphic design. Everything is actually a symbol. And this just fit right in. It checked all those boxes. But when you dig into it a little bit, the pillow is not $11,000 unless you start putting weird customization letters in. That's a software problem. The Mm -hmm. cabinets are industrial-grade cabinets. You know, people are already putting up GoFundMes saying, Pitch in so we can buy one of these cabinets and figure out if it's real. That is a scam. That is a scam, you guys. And, you know, we just can't. I think there's a beautiful thing about wanting to trust the things that people in your life are talking about and caring about. I think you should stay in those relationships. It is also increasingly important that you be able to leave Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and find validation of the information you see there from sources that you've heard of a thousand times over before you start to take it seriously. Yep. Can we talk about one more aspect of the internet that
4: really left me in a state? Please. So thanks to Jamie B. Golden, or no thanks to Jamie B. Golden, I started following Karen's Going Wilds and here's the thing. I'm not unfamiliar with Karens. I've seen the videos that, that came across the national news. But the depth and breadth of people engaging in this type of behavior, specifically people who will use the N-word to a perfect stranger in front of a cell phone camera, was mind-blowing to me. I felt a little bit like the first time I went to a party and everybody was drinking, and I just wanted to say, was I the only one paying attention in the morally responsible episodes of Growing Pains? Like, this is a bad idea, guys. And I see these videos of people being like, you need to go back to where you came from. You should be a slave. Like, was I the only one paying attention during Martin Luther King Day? And I'm the only American that internalized that all men are created equal, that we don't talk like that to our fellow citizens. Like, it's not, I'm a person that, you know, especially as a city commission, engaged with my community. I heard people's individual stories of racism and discrimination. I read a lot about it. I think a lot about it. I. It, it, it's not like systemic racism is a surprise to me. But the level of hate Was. I'm not going to lie. The level of hate blew my mind.
2: Can I tell you a thing that has blown my my, my mind? Um, Yes. I cannot believe that here in Kentucky, 87 people were charged with a felony for protesting at our attorney general's house in um, support of charges filed in the Breonna Taylor case. Mm. 87 people were charged with a felony for a peaceful protest at our attorney general's house. What is going on? This is our same attorney general who is seeking court orders invalidating all of our governor's executive orders intended to protect from COVID-19. So I've got lots to say about him in general. File that and elections have consequences. But, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, when you talk about the Karen's gone wild and how could that be? To me, it can be. Because the legitimate forms of government, the democratically Mm -hmm. elected forms of government, are still telling us in so many ways, you just need to calm down about racism, everybody. Yeah. Well, even more
4: explicitly supporting white supremacy. Let's be honest. Exactly. That's what's unleashed this, in my mind, is just the validation of, oh, yeah, your racial grievance? Go for it. You're right spew that hate, spew it. Because that's, you know, (laughs) I was listening to an interview with Mary Trump and she, somebody asked her, what makes your uncle so dangerous? And she said, he doesn't care what he destroys to get what he wants. And I see people acting like that. And to me, it is. I don't think that Donald Trump is the only problem in the United States. Please let me be abundantly clear about that. But I do think that, not only has he exposed problems we already had, but he unleashed. I mean, you watch that channel. It's like an exorcism. It's like people are like you expect at any moment for their heads to turn around backwards. And like I think the long term stuff is income inequality, mental, like the, the abandonment of mental health care. There's lots of layers to why people get to a state where they're they're willing to blame other groups with such hatred. But I don't know. I just feel like for so long, there was at least these institutional agreements that kept some of this in place. And
2: he just unleashed it all. And then he knows how to use all of our concerns. I mean, this gets back to the Wayfair conspiracy. The things that we are most afraid of are always used against us. I was losing my mind in my bedroom this morning to my um, long-suffering husband about (laughs) the death penalty cases and the two executions that have happened because just for a little review we reinstated the federal death penalty in 1988 which is shameful in my view and between 1988 and this week three people were killed by the federal government three we have four executions scheduled from the beginning of july to the end of august and the person who was killed This morning, as we are recording, was 68 years old and has Alzheimer's and committed his crime just 22 years ago. And I don't know who is served by that. The person who was killed a couple days ago, the family of the victims practically begged the court not to execute him. They said it would only exacerbate their pain. I don't know who is served by that. But what I do know is what my husband reminded me of, which is, Bill Barr and the Trump administration are doing this again to distract to have something else to talk about, to speak Mm -hmm. to people's fears. And when you look at what the Department of Justice has put out about resuming these executions, it is the most gruesome descriptions of the crimes these people have committed. And they are gruesome. They are heinous. They are wrong and messed up on every level. And still, the fact that our government is killing them decades after they committed the crimes makes absolutely no sense to me. But I think getting back to why are conspiracy theorists obsessed with pedophilia and child sex trafficking? I think it's because when you want people to follow you, you speak to their most deeply held fears and concerns.
4: Yep. Yep. That's what I, I was talking to a friend about this and she said, I think people are so afraid. And I said, yeah, and fear and hatred are two sides of the same coin. And right now, it feels like it's the only currency in America. And it's just so hard and frustrating. And that's why, honestly, I'm really excited to, (laughs) to move into our series the next few weeks, because I think we need a big dose of, we know it's hard right now. We have to think about what the future could look like. It's really important for us. To do that, because if we soak ourselves in the hatred and fear of this particular moment, it, you know, not only doesn't help us get out of it, but certainly doesn't help us get to somewhere better.
2: You know, because I think that the call to action here is not to not be afraid. There are a lot of things to be afraid of right now. There are a mm-hmm. lot of scary things. Uh, there are a lot of unknowns. Where we have all the information the world has ever known on our phones, basically, in our pockets. And yet we are confronting things that we do not understand. And that is, that's a tough one, you know? So it's okay. But as Sarah's favorite, Oprah Winfrey says, you know, courage is being afraid and going on. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's the call to action. Let's be afraid of whatever we're afraid of, but then keep moving forward instead of being stuck in that fear and letting it control us, which is, I don't know, a sadly poignant transition as we talk about the future of the Republican Party. Just finished A Court of Thorns and
4: Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. com As we sat down to have this conversation, we knew we had to talk to Mark McKinnon. He is an American political advisor, has worked for both parties, a reform advocate, and um, most recently, a part of the hit Showtime show, The Circus. And so we sat down with Mark and asked him from his vantage point, what the future of the Republican Party looks like and what all these movements inside the Republican Party, these
2: anti-Trump movements are trying to do. I have somewhere in the neighborhood of 70,000 questions for you about everything that's going
0: on. (laughs) i got time for 65,000.
2: Okay, perfect. Perfect. I was thinking about 2016, actually, in getting ready to talk with you and thinking about a particular episode of The Circus called The Prisoner's Dilemma. Oh, yeah. And I remember watching you talking with with your co-host on The Circus about the obvious fact that someone was going to have to drop out and consolidate so that people could consolidate by an alternative to Trump. And I wonder, as you think back to that moment and roll forward to where we are today, Looking at groups like the Lincoln Project, like Republican Voters Against Trump, all these efforts by people who were really, in my view, the heart of the party pre-Trump. How do you connect those things in your mind?
0: Well, I mean, I connect them by, I mean, Trump ran as a, you know, as Jeb Bush said, as the chaos candidate, Mm -hmm. and then he became the chaos president. He was the ultimate Mm -hmm. disruptor. He was the ultimate change candidate running against the ultimate status quo candidate, Hillary Clinton. And so, you know, Donald Trump never thought he was going to be president. (laughs) You know, that's why all these legal problems are so problematic. He knew all that stuff was out there. He just never thought he was going to have to deal with it. He thought that it'd be good for his brand to, he, he, he understood, rightly so, that if you want to get a bunch of attention, the biggest spotlight in the world is run for president. He thought he'd go do that for a while. And we know from our reporting that he had intended to do that for three or four or five months and then endorse Chris Christie for president. Hmm. And he just kept winning. And I mean, he won because he was a disruptor and a change agent and a candidate of kind of status quo establishment Republicans. And there was just a great hunger for something completely different. And people just didn't really realize just how different it was going to be. And then didn't take long after he was president for, a lot of the establishment Republicans to realize that Trump was antithetical to their interests and their ideology and their history. and so it's not a surprise that these groups have formed, and it's not that these kinds of groups haven't formed before in the past. This is just the first time they've been really effective and well-funded. So I mean, the, the first thing is that, a, they're like serious. when they've happened in the past, they've been like four or five people, and they raise a few hundred dollars and put up one ad, and and that's about it. I saw that the Lincoln project had just raised 16 million Republican voters against Trump has got, I think, 9 million subscribers online and getting tons of videos of former Republican voters are being sent in. It's very effective. And now there's a there's even a, a 43 group, people who work for uh, George W. Bush. So those are three significant efforts that involve like real players. and. It's been effective because they're they're smart strategists 2 to they're well-funded. And three, they know how to get into the head of the president. I mean, the one thing I've worked on both sides of the aisle. The one thing the Republicans are just much better at doing is attacking. I mean, they're ruthless mm-hmm. and shameless. and so yep. uh, They're just really good at it. And they're fast and furious. And Democrats will sit around and wring their hands and worry about who they're offending. And meanwhile, Republicans will just start taking heads off.
4: Here's my question, though. I remember in 2016, I think it was Ezra Klein that said everything, sort of the the overall strategies when they were attacking each other, when they were attacking Democrats, when they were selling their platform to the public, there was sort of, you know, if you're Mitch McConnell, it's, oh, we got to, you know, we got to work on the corruption in Washington and these Democrats are a threat to our American values and all this stuff. And it was sort of with a wink, right? A wink and a nod. And then Trump came along and there was no winking. And I think there was this sense among the base of like, well you've been telling us that this is do or die, all the stuff's on the line for decades. And you know, we haven't overturned Roe v. Wade and we haven't did all these things that you keep selling candidates to us as the solution to this, you know, fundamental essential breakdown of American values. And so, you know, you might have been winking but we weren't and this guy's not winking so we're going with him. And I wonder with these groups you know, I hear the Lincoln Project saying, well, we're going after the party needs a clean break. And I hear him saying that, and I like the sound of it. But I'm like, you guys know and we know that this started before Trump, but he took advantage of an environment that had been built over decades. And so when you say we want a clean break and we're going after Republican senators and we're going to undo a lot of this, you know, even to what you said, like the, the willingness to attack and the willingness to like. Are you really? Do you see that there's a reexamination of the tactics that led to Trump, or is it just this? We got to take our party back from Trump.
0: I think it's just they, we want we got to take the party back and mm-hmm. do it at, at all costs. And you know, Trump, you know, for his base, has done what he promised. But for you know Republicans who are, you know, longtime Republicans and have been in, working for the party for a long time, he's abandoned you know, a lot of the fundamental principles. Yeah, he's been good on judges and he's been good on a couple of other things, but on trade and, you know, a lot of other things that are fundamental. You know, people were against Trump before he was elected and they got even, you know, more opposed to him after he was elected. So I think there's going to be, well, there's already a reckoning about the future of the Republican Party. And if Trump loses, that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch, the rehabilitation of the party.
2: It just seems like such a journey to me from... That prisoner's dilemma where we couldn't even consolidate around one non-Trump option to making ads in support of Joe Biden and not just Joe Biden, but his uh, down ballot you know, companions that they're trying to take out Republican senators. And I wonder, like, do you think the the feeling of. Fast, furious rage that comes through these ads is genuine or is that just applying the playbook in the direction that makes the most sense right now?
0: Oh, I think it's genuine. I think people feel that party's been hijacked. And, and part of the reason the party's been hijacked is not just Trump, but the people who've served him. Mm-hmm. And that there's a reckoning, not just for Trump, but the people who facilitated all of this. So in their view, it's it's better to make a clean sweep and start from scratch, burn the house down.
4: So you have that great perspective, not just because of your work with both parties, but I think your work on the circus. So why do you think in 2020 on the Democratic side, the prisoner's dilemma worked and they said, all right, we're going to consolidate because we don't want Bernie. So what are we going to do here? And didn't work in 2016 on the Republican side.
0: Well, you could say that it did work for the Republican side. They elected a president, you know. Right. I mean, (laughs) at the end of the day, they they beat Hillary Clinton. And so, in a sense, I mean, the prisoner's dilemma on the Democratic side this time, it was pretty fascinating to watch because, Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, Biden— I didn't think
4: we had had it in us, I'll be honest. I did not think we had that level of organization in us.
0: I thought, you're going to blow it, and uh, like the Democrats always do. And that was a remarkable 72 hour period because Biden had really struggled and struggled, you know, for obvious reasons. He's old, he's establishment, all of that. But, you know, it, it was just and it was we came really close to getting Bernie Sanders as the nominee, which, you know, maybe in the current environment, any Democrat can win. But it sure would have been harder for Sanders. And I, I certainly wouldn't be happy about it. And I know a lot of my colleagues wouldn't. And it'd been harder for people like Lincoln Project and these others to be fanning mm-hmm. the flames with somebody like Bernie Sanders out there. but you know the it, you're right. I mean the Democrats, for once, kind of pulled together, and you know I, I, I think if Joe Biden's elected, you guys should just you know make uh, Jim Clyburn a saint, just or make <laughs> you know that that guy. I mean, Joe Biden owes him everything if he's elected yep. president because he's the guy that made it happen. And he's a, he's a really a remarkable character. It was fun to be around him in South Carolina. He's a wise old dude, man.
4: Hmm. I mean, it, it, you know, I don't know if it was just that. To me, it's an, it's an argument for what we talk about a lot on Pansy Politics, which is, you know, nobody likes to talk about smoke-filled rooms and they're really unpopular <laughs> for obvious reasons.
0: Well, the other but thing that-
4: parties are not supposed to be wholly democratic. Like there's supposed to be some leadership that knows what's going on, that's pulling the levers, that can see, that has a different perspective than your average voter. A Jim Clyburn that can come in and be like, "No, let me show you. I know how this plays out. and We're not going that direction."
0: Well, that's what was kind of unusual and unique about unique for the time about it is you're right. I mean, the smoke filled rooms don't really exist like they used to. You couldn't just have kind of a party figure make a pronouncement and have a bunch of people follow him but that's you know it's a little bit of south carolina's just kind of throwback and old school but Mm -hmm. you know it sure worked for this time around
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: and it's what the party needed at the right time
2: i wanted to ask you about that thought experiment of what if it had been somebody besides joe biden it seems to me that joe biden is like uniquely conducive to support from old school republicans 100%. If it weren't Bernie Sanders, but one of the many other options on the Democratic side of the aisle, what do you think this effort might look like?
0: Well, I'd just reverse it a little bit and say, you know, that Joe Biden is just a guy that people like me and, you know, a lot of of establishment Republicans and independents feel very comfortable about. I mean, he's he's a, you know, he's a very centrist guy. You know, he's been resisting you know, I mean, he's 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 evolving, obviously, but he's resisting going, you know, full fledged crazy off the off the you know leftward cliff. And which is good because it's going to help attract, you know, those Republicans and independents that that will be necessary to win in the fall. So the other thing is that it's, it's really hard for Trump to attack him because people know him. Yeah, it's just like, wait a minute, that's Joe Biden. I've known this guy. You know, I've watched this guy for 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know, and so whatever Trump may say about him, people have an experience with him. And and the irony is that, you know, the great disruptor and the great change agent is still running as a change agent as president, which is unusual. But Joe Biden, who is, you know, is is again kind of another status quo candidate like Clinton, but he's he's in this time of covid. People are looking for something safe and familiar and a guy who's been around and knows the levers of government. So all those things are positives for Biden. And and you know, there were other candidates, other Democratic candidates who may have been, you know, more attractive than than Bernie. But Biden, I mean, you know, listen, that's I think that's I mean, the one thing that Trump did get right was recognize that Biden was his biggest problem mm-hmm. early on. And that, you know, that's why he tried to get you know, Ukraine to do his dirty business for him because he he recognized early on that a threat that what a big threat Biden is and you can see that they're struggling now. They can't figure out how to run against him.
4: Yeah. Well, and I think from the impeachment, and I wonder if this is what Jim Clyburn and other party leaders saw, we were so obsessed with how the impeachment didn't take out Donald Trump and how some of these accusations didn't stick to Donald Trump. But the truth of the matter is that they were also not sticking to Biden, that that was not impacting his brand. That was not impacting his reputation either. And I don't know if Trump saw that or I don't know if that was part of Clyburn's calculations. But, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, he walked right out of that, too. And I I mean, I just think some of this is, yeah, people know Biden. But when I look at the Lincoln Project and I think about what feels different to me than last time when we had never Trump people in 2016 as well, is that we know Trump, too. Like so much of the element of surprise of, well, he won't do that, is gone. It's like George Will. No, he has no bottom. Always assume he can get worse. You know, like I think that that is that to me is what feels different, is not only that people trying to attack him and get under his skin and figure out what works, like they got a lot more data, like there's a better understanding of who he is and how he operates. But I think that's true of even voters as well.
0: Yeah, Washington columnist said, you know, we, we always know what the worst day for Trump is going to be tomorrow.
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. So I just think that, do you see that? Yeah. That awareness of like what works and what doesn't playing out with these Lincoln projects like it seems like they their strategies seem different to me than the never Trump attempts in
0: 2016. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're they're mostly just screwing with them. And it's, it's you know, I mean, some of the Republican voters against Trump stuff is designed to to truly persuade conservative leaning voters that the, the Lincoln project, you know, is mostly just a, a, you know, psychological Nuclear bomb that goes off every other day for Trump and just to distract mm-hmm. him and it and, and it works pretty well because he he gets their attention. I mean that's the kind of thing that George Bush would have paid zero attention to. Yeah, he would have completely ignored it, and and Barack Obama would have too.
4: Mm-hmm. But Trump- and that's the thing he has no ca- when when I think it was Thune or somebody came out and was like. He really needs to shift strategies. He, We really need him to, you know, pay attention to this and not do that. And I just wanted to be like, who are you talking to? He can't change. He, he. It's not a strategy. It's who he is. He has no other approaches. That's it. What you see is what you get. And listen, maybe that's what people responded to in 2016. But, like, he's not going to all of a sudden become, like you said, like George Bush or Barack Obama and, like, put on the presidential hat and not get in involved in these like attack ads on him like he just doesn't have it in him
0: no he doesn't but the problem is that the campaign is constantly trying to shift tactics and strategies and uh you know the one thing that we uh learned in the 2004 campaign and David Plouffe sort of gave a hat tip to in terms of the way they ran their operation too was that even a flawed consistent strategy is better than a strategy that changes Mm -hmm. it's and that's what's happening with Trump now. So, you know, they're trying to change his nickname They're, you know, they're just trying, you know, they're throwing shit against the wall and nothing's sticking. And so they're trying to throw something else, you know, every day and, and it's not working. And uh, you know, they're going to they'll shift personnel, they'll shift messages, they'll shift nicknames, uh, which is all problematic because that sends a signal that they don't have a clear strategy. And, of course, the worst thing is that on a couple of occasions, Trump has asked what his rationales for a second term and he has not.
2: We also spent some time with Tim Miller, who is a contributor to The Bulwark. He is the political director for Republican Voters Against Trump. He previously was the communications director for Jeb Bush, and he's just somebody that I have followed for a long time. It meant a lot to me to talk to Tim Miller, because when Jeb Bush dropped out of the 2016 race, there wasn't even a second where Tim Miller said, well, I guess we're getting on the Trump train now. He is somebody who's put a lot on the line. Career wise, in a very real way, to say this is not what conservative principles are supposed to be. And we were just really thrilled to get this chance to hear his views on Republican voters against Trump. You know, we have a lot of listeners who are really interested in Republican voters against Trump and the Lincoln Project. And I have been following your work um, pretty closely since Jeb's campaign. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested to see how you, you know, consistently like, From the moment Jeb dropped out, we're like, not Trump. And have stuck with that. And I would love to just hear about sort of how you got involved with Republican Voters Against Trump, sort of the journey from 2016 to today.
1: Yeah, well, after Jeb dropped out, I was uh, laying on the beach in Miami, and I was planning on spending a couple of weeks doing just that, Um, you know, nursing my wounds and getting tan, reading some crashy fiction. Uh, And then I got a phone call. From a group that was at the time it was called Our Principles Pack, and they were they were um, going to try to stop Trump in the 2016 primary, and they needed a spokesperson. And you know, I, honestly, I, like it felt like a no brainer to me. I just Trump failed every imaginable character leadership <laughs> um, test that I that I could have put forth for a candidate. He was never going to be a starter for me, you know, dating back to birtherism and the Muslim ban his racism his lack of interest in our the fundamental American values and so I, I kind of jumped on that and then I asked around to a few other folks and that was my first wake-up call that maybe everybody didn't agree with me on this because a lot of people thought I was crazy for doing that and 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 ruining my career or whatever but um, I did it anyway uh, and so you know, uh, like you said, I stuck with it fast forward uh, three years or or maybe fast forward one year after he won the presidency. I kind of went to a dark hole for a couple of months, and some friends, Bill Crystal and Sarah Longwell started this group defending democracy together. I was happy that they were doing that, but I needed a, a little break and um you know as we as we head up to this election, uh, I got with them to uh, talk about what. You know their plans were for for DDT, and um, you know we got to talking about starting this group, Republican Voters Against Trump, and and it was based a lot on the research that Sarah had been doing, he, talking to Trump voters who, who who you know were gettable and asking them you know what persuades them, you know testing ads, uh, you know learning about you know why they liked him, what they didn't like about him, and that's where this program you know came out of we you heard that a lot of these voters you know had anti-elite sentiments that so shouldn't be surprising and so getting lectured to from dc was not very helpful they would t- tune out immediately a lot of ads you know as soon as it seemed too nasty but they were at least open to hearing and listening to messages when it came from people like them people that were conflicted people that had given trump a chance and so that basically was the uh, the impetus for the program and and I was you know excited to get involved with them and help them with that
3: it seems to me like there's two groups that come up a lot in this conversation yep you have the republican voter you're every man every woman you know they usually live in michigan and then we're particularly obsessed with them but i think that conversation also includes his base which felt like to me in 2016 i felt like the conversation was well there's this silent majority there's these people that really love trump that, that won't talk about it. I think those people still exist to a certain extent. But now that a conversation in 2020 seems to have really shifted to his base and where we see behavior like a loyalty, I don't know, like a, a just obsession with him that you don't usually see even in the most passionate bases. I mean, does yeah. that? and I think it's really affecting down-ballot Republicans because of that behavior of the base. Does that seem right to you? Does it seem like it's shifted? Is there anything somebody interested in saving the Republican Party can do? When I'm not sure how big the percentage is, but a pretty big percentage is that base that's just obsessed with him.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, I wrote about this for Rolling Stone. I called a bunch of consultants who are still in in the game. Obviously, I went too anti-Trump, and so you know, nobody, no Republicans are going to hire me, and I'm not going to work for most of them. So uh, I'm I'm out of the (laughs) game a little bit on political consulting. But I so I called a bunch of my old you know, friends and rivals and colleagues and just ask them, what's the state of play? And I heard this over and over again, that look, that that he has this, you know, religious-like devotion from parts of the base. One of, one of the consultants said that, you know, he gets Saddam Hussein-like numbers mm-hmm. in rural parts of the country. And so, you know, there's this tension, right? Because those people, he had them in 2016 too, but he also won over a lot of voters that were, uh, I forget who coined this term, called them the haters, voters that didn't really like Trump, didn't like Hillary either. Um, A lot of those folks went for Trump. Last time, some of those were these sort of silent majority folks that you're talking about. Some of them would be happy to talk about it. They just were grossed out by both candidates and just thought he was a better bet. Yeah. And, and so the problem is that this time, as you look to 2020, if you're a down ballot candidate, like you got to appeal to both those groups, and they have totally divergent views on this presidency. You know, the one group wants you to just compliment everything, and the other group is kind of like, "Ooh, I'm pretty worried about the tweets and his handling of the virus and how rude he's been." On on the George Floyd protests and so it's tough to appeal to both those parts of the of the electorate um, and and i and i do think that you know the first group wins out because it's a majority. i think it's a slight majority but you know it's 50 60% of the party that wants you to just be totally devoted maybe maybe a little more if, if you look only at the primary electorate one person told me it was 80% of the primary electorate that are just trump loyalists um, and then if you get to a general election electorate you know 60% maybe
2: But that's,
3: you know, when Beth sent me that article, I thought I knew what was going to be in the Rolling Stone piece. Like as somebody who lives and works (laughs) in D.C., I thought I knew what they were going to say, because I think that's the different group that we have this conversation around. Like we have the Republican voter and then the base and we have Republican elites and Republican politicians and the people in D.C. And I thought I knew what they were going to say to you off the record. And I was blown away by the tribalism and the hatred of the left. And the feeling yeah. like, yeah, he's back. Like, I mean, did that shock you or did you expect it? And what does that say for the future of the party?
1: Yeah, honestly, I was kind of surprised. So I, I, of the consultants I talked to, they were in kind of three camps, right? Some of them have like basically put on the red hat. And so you knew what you're going to get, you know, and then some of them were pretty much don't like Trump, but but this is their career they've chosen. And so they're sticking with it. Right. And so and so neither I heard about what I expected from those folks. It was just the middle ground, you know, people that I didn't really know that much about and that, you know, when we're in social settings, we don't talk about Trump because everybody knows what my view is. Right. And it was uh-huh. really fascinating to hear from them because to a person, they were all just the media is out to get us. The never Trumpers are assholes the far left is going crazy and they're gonna you know add three states and take down george washington's monuments <laughs> and you know they they're gonna they call me a racist and uh you know they they're everything's so woke and i was like i, I can I, a couple of times i was like real? i almost wanted to argue with them but yeah. I, you know i wanted to learn i just the, the whole point of the process was to learn what they thought so i, I tried not to argue but you know, it was like, wow, I mean, really? I, I just, I, I don't share that view. And I think that there's this bubble that's been created around, around Republican consultants in DC that they uh-huh. all kind of tell each other this, right? That we have to, you know, that the left is bad, the media is out to get us, the never-Trumpers are assholes. And so there's not a lot of reflection going on about about Trump's own behavior. and And I just don't know, I just don't know that I agree. Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I look at the left and see, you know, that Joe Biden won this primary in a landslide. <laughs> so yep. I I don't really see the radicalism. You know, I don't agree with Joe Biden on a lot of things, but 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 I, I don't see him as a radical or the the the, the 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 base of the Democratic Party has gone crazy. I see the base of the Republican Party has has gone crazy.
2: It's kind of comforting to me to hear you say that because as I've watched this unfold, you know, I voted for Republicans always until Trump.
0: Yeah. And
2: I never ever felt that hostility about Democrats just as a regular voter. And now I feel like that hostility is the, almost the reason for being of the party. Yeah, And I just, I'm really confused by it. And I, and I have wondered like, was that always animating this? And I was just a sucker for it because people like Tim Miller are good at their jobs. Or is that new?
1: <laughs> well, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I'll speak for me. Um, I, and I, I also didn't share this personal loathing for the you know Obama folks. I was friends with a lot of Obama folks. you know we went out and drank had drinks after you know debate nights and stuff and where we'd we'd argue and we'd argue on Twitter and we'd disagree on things but i I didn't share, have a loathing for them. I didn't think Obama was ruining the country and and I do think I underestimated and this is something that I have regrets about how how genuine a lot of the 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 party base and i guess some of my peers uh really in the consultant class did feel that obama was fundamentally ruining the country and and they believed yeah. in a very genuine way you know some of the whatever oppo research we would put out and you know some of these hits on obama that You know, maybe I would I would attack them and have a little bit of a tongue in cheek um, uh, method of attacking them. A lot of them took it very seriously. And 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 honestly, I have regrets about it because I should have seen it. I mean, it was there with the birtherism. It was there. I remember having conversations with people who I thought were pretty rational. And, and it would turn out they actually believed the birtherism stuff. I, you know, I mean, I would get blindsided by that, and like that should have been. I, I look back on it and say there should have been some warnings here that there that, um, yeah. that that the folks were going off the deep end on some of this stuff.
3: Well, and let me just as a lifelong Democrat and somebody who worked in Washington D.C., Republicans don't have a monopoly on animosity, especially during W's presidency. No doubt, there was. A mood of he is a threat. They are, you know, not to be trusted. They are disingenuous about everything, but it never felt to me like, you know, I think it was a part of what got us here as much as the animosity on the right, but there, but there was still this line. There was still this, you know, it wasn't everybody there, especially I felt like in Congress, there was a sense of like, you have your outliers, but the majority of people here are sort of like, you know, the John McCain camp and everybody can get on board and I'll work with them. I mean, you kind of hear it in the sense of like, you hear it when senators speak, you hear it when Durbin speaks, you hear it like, I feel like there's just a loss of any congeniality, any like benefit of the doubt is just gone. It is gone among the political class in DC. And I, you know, I think it's more dangerous when it comes to the Republican Party, because I just think they have a demographic reckoning coming their way. And I, I want two parties. I really do. Yeah. And I think it's important for our democracy. And I, if they don't think they can win ever, or they see this demographic reckoning, and there's just no willingness to pay attention to the long term, like what is the long term fallout of this? Even if you think Donald Trump wins a second term, he can't live forever. What is, is it Donald Trump Jr. like? What is the long-term plan here, guys? Like, I'm worried. I'm really worried. Yeah.
1: I mean, I will say this: I I, I was with you too on the Democratic outrage to Bush that I thought was a lot of times hyperbole. Um, you know, f- of course, you know, with the Iraq War kind of being the exception, like there was a lot of fair outrage about that. But uh, you know, I think that there were a lot of mm-hmm. times when, when it was overkill. Uh but then, you know, we we went ahead and nominated Donald Trump and I started to think, well, I don't know, maybe the Democrats actually were seeing clearly <laughs> and it was me that had my head in the sand. Um, you know Maybe
3: we weren't crunched taking a little.
1: Yeah, we, we are what they thought we were. whatever that uh, the old uh, line is from the football coach. Um um so as far as the future is concerned, look, I I I'm pessimistic for this reason. Th- there's been a big shift in the makeup of the parties. Over the last four years, and a lot of the voters who in Republican primaries would have been moderating influences, these maybe some listeners of this podcast, you know, suburban women, college-educated women in particular who are swing voters, the famous, you know, security moms for W., These people are Democrats now, you know, Um, Okay, these they're Democrats and they they went out in huge numbers for Joe Biden in that primary. And and then while those folks have left the party, an an influx of, you know, former union guys who don't really care that much about, you know, conservative economics or, or, you know, national security, you know, these two legs of the Republican stool that are, you know, filled with cultural grievance against the elites, they've come into the party. All right. And so now, you know, if you look ahead to future primaries, you know, in a lot of places, you know, there are exceptions to this, but but Republican candidates are going to have to appeal to a base now that is less educated, more white, more rural, more culturally aggrieved, less caring about conservative principles. That is not a, a path, you know, that that to me does not look like a party that's going back to Nikki Haley, right? Uh, to me. Um, now, now obviously all this stuff can change. It's hard to predict, but that's the thing that concerns me the most is that the makeup of the parties have changed and this is a bottom-up problem, not a top-down problem with the Republican Party.
2: Well, I want to ask you then what you see as the goal. I love how Republican voters against Trump is tackling this problem. It feels to me like they... More than the Lincoln Project or Project Lincoln are really trying to speak to people who are persuadable. I think Project Lincoln is is smart and interesting for a number of reasons, but it it feels more like preaching to the converted. So, what is the goal as you see it of Repo- Republican voters against Trump, and and how's it going as we move toward that goal?
1: As far as Project Lincoln is concerned, I just want to say this: I think one thing they're doing that's really important is leveling the playing field. You know, Donald Trump played on a very uneven playing field last time because he was playing by one set of rules and the Democrats and, and Jeb and Marco and all of us were playing by a different set. Yep. And I think Lincoln, the Lincoln Project is saying, well, we're going to play by your set of rules. <laughs> okay. So yeah. I, I think that's a very important additive um, thing that they're bringing to the table in addition to, to other stuff they're doing. But, yeah, look, uh, as far as our group is concerned, we have one mission, and that's beating Donald Trump. And and we want to, you know, d- attract as many voters as possible who can help us with that. And so, you know, this is based in research, as I said, it's based in testing. But the other thing it is, is we're actually trying to talk to a little bit of a different demo than they are in some ways. I, I, we want the person that might be a Joe Biden, Tom Tillis voter in in North Carolina to hear our message. And we want to try to persuade them, Uh right? Whereas the Lincoln Project, I think, is trying to rip off Joe Biden and Tom Tillis's face. And so uh, what we've found is if you look at the kind of demographic groups here, you have um, a group of voters that maybe voted for Donald Trump last time, but still really consider themselves conservative and Republican. And they just voted against Hillary. And maybe we can help persuade them to just throw their vote away. And that's a plus one for Joe Biden, right? And then you've got a group uh-huh. of suburban people that last time maybe said, I'm going to vote for Evan McMullen. Now we can move them over to Joe Biden. That's a plus one for Joe Biden. That's the same, you know, so talking to these Trump voters, that's why we called it Republican voters against Trump and why it was a very specific um Name, because we want to be able to attract these folks that still really kind of consider themselves Republicans and conservatives.
2: What do you think about the the scorched earth from Project Lincoln? the sort of let's take the the Senate too? I can't decide if it is necessary to uh, torch this house in order to save it or if if the more, hey, you know stick with your Congress people, but let's get Trump out and then we'll take the next step from there is is a better approach
1: it's a tough one, right? Because here's my problem is Donald Trump to me is so atrocious on his face and he's so unfit and he's doing so much damage to the fabric of our country that like the idea that you think that Donald Trump should serve another term in office is a disqualifying thing, I think, for me Mm -hmm. in supporting you ever again. It's just such a bad judgment call. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we disagree on what the tax rate should be or, you know, which month we should start to have restrictions on abortion or, you know, uh, know, they're all the regulation. There are all these issues I think we can all disagree on in good faith that your judgment is demonstrated to be so bad if you think that Donald Trump should be the president for another four years. So I I, I feel that way on on one side. On the other side, you know, I just I don't think that it's realistic, you know, it's kind of wish casting mm-hmm. to think that like we're going to scalp all these guys and start new with a new moderate diverse Republican Party um, So I, I think it'll have to be a case-by-case basis And and I think that the reality is the Republican Party is going to have a Trump imprint on it for a while and, and maybe people like me just aren't a part of that. And so You know, I I think that everybody who's been part of this should be held accountable for the fact that they were part of it. But um, I I think that this idea that we're going to just, you know, salt the earth and and take over the party with a bunch of never Trump rhinos is pretty pretty wishful thinking at best.
3: Well, and it's just like, what should be your top priority, Susan Collins or the new class of QAnon congressional representatives coming our way? You know, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what's a bigger threat
1: yeah yeah again. I mean, from my perspective, like trump, 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 Trump. like uh, let's get rid of Trump and then deal with the rest later. Uh, I totally understand the perspective that's like all these folks have to pay, and I have bloodlust um, that that resonates with me, but I'm focused on on one guy
2: well, I wonder too. I'm the person you described. so I voted for Evan McMullen, then I became a Democrat. and I think probably for a generation, people people like me, the security moms, are we're gone. Yeah, they're out. And so maybe maybe we just don't come back. Do you think that means something new builds?
1: Yeah, look, I, I mean I think that what we saw in 2018 was a lot of folks that were maybe the Evan McMullen crowd. Already, basically, switched sides. Um, you know, and became mm-hmm. Democrats in the midterms. Um, there, there, are, I think some counter examples to that. Uh, you know, there definitely has been a magnet back to the party for some folks who, you know, look at the squad and all these random cultural issues and, and decide that, that that Donald Trump is somebody they can stomach. Um, but, but for the most part, a lot of these third party voters moved in 2018, and so when you look at the electorate this time. I think this is underappreciated. Joe Biden can win this election without winning one Obama-Trump voter back, without adding one African-American voter, a young voter in the urban centers in these swing states that didn't vote for Hillary. All he has to do is win the uh, voters who last time looked at both candidates and said, I'm sitting this one out. And, and, if you and he does the great numbers, in that polling. Yeah, he yeah, does. He does great for him. Yeah, so if you look at Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, there, there's a hundred thousand plus voters in all those states who last time, who are not traditional third-party voters, who last time just sat it out. But if Biden wins those folks, he's the president. Um, so I, it is a super important slice of the electorate that I, I, I think gets a little lost in the media coverage, as compared to you know the vaunted, you know, working-class Obama-Trump voter sitting in the diner.
3: So let's say Donald Trump loses. Please, God, let Donald Trump
1: lose.
3: God willing. What is next for somebody who cares, who still considers themselves a Republican? Like, what's next for Republican voters against Trump?
1: You know, I I think we probably have an amicable breakup. Uh, Honestly, I think that there are some people uh, in that group who say, who look at the Democratic Party and say, you know, I'm going to fight for the center in the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, and I identify more like an Alyssa Slotkin type Democrat now, basically. I think that there are some people that will look at the Republican Party and say, I can stomach Nikki Haley. You know, she grossed me out with how much she sucked up to Trump. But like on the grand scheme of things, I can get past it and I want to fight for the Republican Party. And and in realistic terms, Nikki Haley is the best bet. I mean, the idea that some never Trumper like, you know, Larry Hogan is going to be the 2024 nominee. I mean, I guess somebody can fight for that. But I think that's wishful thinking. Um, and then I think that there will probably be a group, uh, I think a lot of the Lincoln Project guys feel this way, that that feel like maybe there's a third option and this is the right time for the country. Uh-huh. We've gotten so polarized. Um, and, and, you know, I've always been pretty pessimistic on third parties historically. But, you know, I do think eventually this rubber band snaps, you know, and if and if you get to a, a 2024 election and, and or a 2028, you know, where where the Democrats do lose control of their party to kind of the Bernie wing, you know, I I think a lot of things are changing in our politics right now. So I I think there's probably a split up between those three camps. Um, And, you know, it will probably depend a lot on, you know, how the Democrats act um, and whether they stick with the sort of Biden style Democrats or whether, you know, he gets co-opted. And it depends a little bit on how much Trump loses. You know, like if he gets if Texas tips over, you know, maybe there's a real reckoning. You know, if he gets killed that much in a close election, you know, I think they blame it on coronavirus and just kind of run the whole thing back.
2: Mm. Do you have time for one more? Of course. I was really interested in John Weaver's comment in the Washington Post piece about Never Trumpers that the next phase is to deal with people like Tucker Carlson. It seems to me that if there is to be a viable third option, that it has to be nurtured by a new form of conservative media. And I just wonder what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I I thought the backlash against Weaver's comments were kind of weird, to be honest. I mean, (laughs) you know, like shock. Never Trump Republicans don't want the party to be taken over by a bunch of nativist, nationalist um, Mm -hmm. uh, assholes like Tucker Carlson. And and it's going to be a fight that continues to be fought. I, I I think that's kind of self-evident. And so I just think the question is whether that's a fight that happens within the Republican party or whether it's a fight that happens kind of from the outside.
2: Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time uh, and for everything that you're doing out there. How are you feeling about things, Mark, just in general? Like, are you happy with what you're doing and where you are? What do you think matters right now in, in your career as you look at this whole thing? Because I know you care about the landscape a lot.
0: Well, I'm a prisoner of hope. You know, I, I keep pushing a big rock up a very steep hill with kind of reform things that I do and advocate for. And I just, you know, I've I've learned that progress may be incremental, but as long as it's forward, it's worth the effort.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the more existential these issues become, the more important it is to maintain the fight.
2: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry, energy scalp. I want to be sure to say if you have not gone to the Republican Voters Against Trump website, please do that because it really has better answers for many of you who write to us saying, How do I talk to my relatives? than we do. When you hear people in their own words saying, I voted for Trump in 2016. Here's why. Here's where I am today. And those people are a hugely diverse group of individuals speaking with a lot of sincerity and humility. It's it's a really compelling case that they're making. So be sure to check their work out. So, Beth, after we talked to both of them, what do you think the future of the Republican Party looks like? I'm not optimistic. Um, So someone like me is gone. Right. I'm not I can't imagine a version of the Republican Party in my lifetime that I go back to, because as Bill Kristol said in an op-ed on Thursday, realistically, rebuilding the GOP after a Trump loss would have to involve many of the people who have enabled, propped up, supported Donald Trump. And that's not something that is ever going to work for me. And I think none of those people are going to allow the Tim Millers and the Project Lincoln guys and the Sarah Longwells back into the fold to help them rehabilitate because there's so much animosity between those groups. And so my feeling is that maybe a third option emerges or maybe it just becomes about what it means to be a Democrat. You know, for me... If being a Democrat means that I get to support people like Amy McGrath, M.J. Heger, Abigail Spanberger, Alyssa Slotkin, I'm good. I can have some disagreements here and there, but I'm satisfied and I feel represented and I feel comforted that we have those kind of competent, serious professionals, people with a deep understanding of national security, people who have a demonstrated ability to work across the aisle when it matters. That that feels really good to me. So I think more depends on what happens in the Democratic Party in some ways to the emergence of that third party than what happens on the GOP side, because I'm just not sure there's any capable movement on the GOP side. There is also this important wing of the Democratic Party who thinks all those people that I just listed are not progressive enough. Right. Um, And so where that other option comes from, I don't know. And I think that's okay. I'm okay being in an I don't know period.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that the truth is the future of the Republican Party is hard to talk about without the future of the entire party system. And I think that a third party alternative could definitely come up on the progressive left um, just as much as it could um, come up from the Republican side of the aisle. I don't think that there is a way to rehabilitate the Republican Party post-Trump because I think much of what led to Trump was baked in. He was a manifestation of some real toxicity within the Republican Party, within the appeal they were making to particularly rural voters, older voters, that fear-based argument. And I don't know how you turn from that. I don't think it's impossible. I would hate to see the party of Lincoln become a historical side note, but it wouldn't be the first time in American history. Probably won't be the last. So I think the um, attachment we have to the parties needs to just, you know, loosen a bit they shift and change over time. We might still call them Democrats and Republicans, but they look very different than they looked even 50 years ago, and that's okay. And I think third party, you know, as we talk about in our How to Be Assistant series, ranked choice voting could really open up lanes for um, more parties. And I think that we need, as our country gets bigger and as the future gets more complicated, the idea that we can only have two choices is just not realistic. There needs to be space for centrists. There needs to be safe space for true progressives. There needs to be space for small government conservatives. I'm And I just don't see that right now. And I don't see how that is possible after the damage Donald Trump has done to the Republican Party.
2: It almost seems more likely to me that that third option would be a progressive party just because there's sort of a personality driver You know, the progressive left seems much more likely to organize and activate and develop that sense of, okay, we're in this together, we're doing it, let's go, than people like me. And I think that's okay. I mean, part of what this has taught me about myself, and I don't know if this is going to be relevant to anyone but me, but I can only speak for me. So here I am. What I've learned about myself is like, I just am not a person who has a strong sense of affiliation. I'm not I don't need a party. It was not difficult for me to vote for Evan McMullen because I didn't feel like I owed the, the Republican Party my vote in 2016. It's not difficult for me to vote for Joe Biden now because I don't find voting for a Democrat to be like some repulsive, weird, out-of-body act. I'm OK being a centrist and kind of floating around. I'm much more likely to be devoted to an issue like criminal justice reform That sometimes is better represented by one party and sometimes the other, but you stay the course on this issue because this issue has like a coherent philosophical underpinning that that is much more my personality than getting involved in a party at any level. I just I don't see a future for myself. Um, being influential in government in that way, because I just I'm not wired that way. And that's fine. Like we talk about on the show all the time. It takes all kinds. And in in order for all kinds to do their best work, people like me need to say, cool, like I shouldn't be in charge because I don't have that. (laughs) I don't have that thing. Um, And how can I best influence and support the people who do have that thing? That's that's the bigger question. Well, join
4: us next week as we start asking really big questions about citizenship. With our How to Be a Citizen series, we'll have lots of extras and bonuses on Patreon. And until Tuesday, keep it nuanced, y'all.
2: Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production.
4: Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music.
2: Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen,
0: David McWilliams,
2: Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Lodow, Emily Neasley,
3: Allison Luzader,
2: Tracy Putoff, Jared Minson.
3: To support
4: Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com pantsuitpolitics.
2: You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.